meal? From lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, I'm going to keep asking you this. Are you hanging out during This Is Hell office hours tomorrow night, our weekly think and drink? It carries Lounge 2251 West Devon every Friday night at 6 o'clock. Are you uh, going to be there this week? God willing. Uh, finally, I can get out of my house to spend some time at the bar. Uh, I found a recipe for uh, potato chip shortbread. So, uh, Oh, that sounds great. Does it? Yeah, it does. Well, the, I guess we'll find out. Your uh, donut cake or donut bread. Donut or loaf. That was really good. Uh, was... I walked in a, I walked in a blizzard uh, two and a half miles with that donut loaf. Uh, yeah, it was good. I'm not a fan of donuts, and I like that. It's, Very... a, it's a closest, uh, closest to a donut a loaf is ever going to get. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, join us every... That was brought to you by the Donut Loaf Council of the United States of America. Join us every Friday night beginning around 6 and going until at least 9, probably 10, maybe 11. Every Friday night, this is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think. It carries Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here offices. If you are interested in volunteering on the show, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. And if you are a community group, club, or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-togethers, drop by and we'll show you the large art gallery space that is available and is the home of Second Story Studios which is also up here on the second floor with us. Today, here on This Is Hell, we'll be talking about fake news, but we'll try not to use the term fake news because the framing of fake news as fake news is, you guessed it, fake news. So what happens to our national dialogue when it's not being done by actual humans but bots? And when social media becomes completely immersive, how long will it be until our reality is virtual. We'll consider those scary thoughts, have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announce this week's winner, and we'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell, and what's happening on the show next week. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff vets the savior of the DNC. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, this week's question from hell is, where do you leave those damn vote totals? Where do you leave those damn vote totals? Our listeners can leave their answers to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. They can email it to you or I at alex at thisishell.com or chuck at thisishell.com. Or they can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. The person with the best answer to this week's question from Al wins a This Is Hell tote bag just the right size to tote lost votes. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh, yeah, and you can also tell that I'm not pessimistic enough uh, from working on the show because when I posted this uh, question from Hell response, or when, I, when I posted the question from Hell on Tuesday, yeah, on Tuesday I thought, oh, this is going to seem so like not timely by uh, Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> and. Uh, 
here we are. <laughs> and here we are at seventy-one percent of the vote. Uh, uh, where did you leave those damn vote totals? Lisa C says in the Moscow Hilton. Dennis H says a CIA black site in Bolivia. Warren L says on the Obamacare website, <laughs> which is pretty good. That's mean, but that's pretty good. Uh, Josh W says that's what Pelosi was really ripping up at the end of the State of the <laughs> Union. Uh, Greg M says if you rub them, they will come. I, you I know, may, he you might, know, Greg, you might have been writing uh, to a, you might have responded to a else. different question on maybe a different Facebook site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really don't know what that was about. Uh, Braden S says somewhere no one will ever find it, like page two of Tom Steyer's autobiography. <laughs> uh, Mason B says deleted them to ward off a Sanders victory and finally Jessica B says I think I might be stuck in the lint trap of my dryer after I put them through the wash dunno again leave your answer to this week's question from hell which is where did you leave those damn vote totals where did you leave those damn vote totals at our Facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio or you can email myself or Alex chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at thisishell.com again the person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a this is hell tote bag handy for toting around all those vote totals you're keeping from us Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest and today's guest is writer and researcher specializing in the study of automation AI emergent technology politics persuasion and social media Dr. Samuel Woolley author of the reality game how the next wave of technology will break the truth yeah if you think it's bad now with bots online purposely misleading us into believing some on social media have way more followers than they actually have boosting the likelihood that the algorithm will consider the person's thoughts in higher demand than they actually are, thus pushing ideas of a fraud on the rest of us, and as frauds are wont to do, those posts usually end up being lies, and then those lies get into the uh, ether, and our popular political debate online and off is screwed more than ever, more divisive, more antagonistic, and driven by purposeful dishonesty. When the next technology comes along and it is on the way, virtual reality will completely immerse us in this misleading world of disinformation and could become the new political indoctrination tool of the 21st century. If you thought it was easy to convince a freak into fascism with a timeline, imagine how easy it will be to when you can create a complete world satisfying all of a visitor's senses. Imagine how easy it will be to brainwash with VR. Dr. Woolley is an assistant professor in the School of Journalism and program director for computational propaganda research at the Center for Media Engagement, both at the University of Texas at Austin. Samuel founded and directed the Digital Intelligence Lab at the Institute for the Future, a 50-year-old think tank based in the heart of Silicon Valley. Samuel also co-founded and directed the research team at the Computational Propaganda Project at the Oxford Internet Institute, University of Oxford, which was an organization that busted uh, President Duterte, as far as his bots showing that you know, trying to mislead people into that the idea that he had far more followers than he actually did. You can find out more about Sam at samwoolley.org. That's W O O L L E Y.org. Another end of the world is possible, and that's what we'll be considering with Sam. This is hell. What a truly, truly hellish week this was. Started with the military parade and recruitment ad that is the pregame of the Super Bowl, the most blatantly political propaganda broadcast every year that its viewers actually do not think is political propaganda. Pretty stunning. I don't know how they do it, 
But somehow, football fans can actually imagine a nationalism that is not political, despite, by definition, nationalism being political. Uh, it's amazing. Sports fans, how you do it? I just don't know how. Don't know. The next day was the Iowa caucus nightmare, which happens every four years as the presidential selection process starts with a very undemocratic process determined by rules that were decidedly ex decided exclusively by a few elites within the party. In other words, very undemocratically. That election process then ends with the very undemocratic electoral college that nobody in D.C. seems to want to end. The following day, we still didn't know the results of that undemocratic process in Iowa, and I know I said the biggest political propaganda event of the year is the militarism of the Super Bowl pregame, but it's actually pretty close between the Super Bowl and the State of the Union address. At least you know the State of the Union address is political propaganda. And this year's was rife with misleading statements and purposeful lies as President Trump trolled the country very successfully on Tuesday night, especially thin-skinned liberals. Then came yesterday, the vote for impeachment. Trump gets off scot-free. Not that it would have mattered if he were impeached because, you know, President Pence. So thanks, Week, for reminding all of us over and over and over again that this is hell. Coming up, the political elite and extremists are using bots online to spread disinformation. And with that in mind, the future of social media is pretty bleak. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Where did you put all those damn vote totals? Where did you put all those damn vote totals? The winner gets a This Is Hell tote bag, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast this week, and we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin this week. Jeff vets the savior of the DNC, as well as tell you what's happening on next week's shows. Again, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. We are being misled every time we log on to social media. We are purposely lied to by political elites and extremists and their attempts to exaggerate how much their message is in demand by the public. So if that's what's happening now, what might new technologies mean for society? Here to help us understand the direction social media may be going, writer, researchers specializing in the study of automation and AI, emergent technologies, politics, persuasion, and social media, Dr. Samuel Woolley is author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sam. Thanks for having me. Dr. Woolley is an assistant professor uh, in the School of Journalism and Program Director for Computational Propaganda Research at the Center for Media Engagement, both at the University of Texas at Austin. You can learn more about that center at mediaengagement.org. And throughout our conversation, I'll be giving out a few more links that you should check out that Sam is involved with, organizations that he's involved with as well. You offer a quote at the beginning of your book from a U.S. National Park Service ranger by the name of Betty Reed Saskio, or Saskin, sorry, saying, every generation I know now has to recreate democracy in its time because democracy will never be fixed. It was not intended to. It's a participatory form of governance, and we all have the uh, responsibility to form that more perfect union. So 
democracy will never be fixed, which implies democracy is imperfect and will always be. How vulnerable does that make democracy that it is not perfect? How vulnerable does that make democracy in with today's advanced communication technology? Is the problem not with the technology, but that democracy is inherently and is supposed to be vulnerable? Yeah, I think it makes democracy vulnerable. But I think that the key thing to underscore from from Betty's quote is that democracy is a work in progress. You know, democracy is never finished. And so a lot of the sensational news we've seen come out about the idea that, say, AI has has ruined democracy or that disinformation has ended democracy as we know it. I don't really buy into that so much, um, despite the provocative subtitle of the book, you know, the next wave, how the next wave of technology will break the truth. I offer a lot of solutions in the book. And I talk a lot about how we've got to pivot right now because we're in a really integral, like kind of, um, pivotal time, uh, to, in, in which we have to respond to disinformation and technology, but, but in which democracy is kind of changing and it doesn't mean that democracy is like done, but if we don't hop on this now, we're going to be in really big trouble. Do you think there is a sense, though, that, you know, democracy won the Cold War, so democracy is now in its perfect state? It doesn't need to be reformed. It doesn't need to be fixed anymore. Is that why it has become vulnerable to technologies like social media? Yeah, you know, I think that there is that sentiment out there that the idea that the democracy that democracy won the Cold War, I think that that's nuts. I think that the reality, if you look to history, is that money won the Cold War. And basically what happened is the United States outspent Russia. Um, but not to get too deep into that, uh, you know, a reliance upon the perspective that tradition or democracy, um, sh- you know, should never change because tradition is correct um, is is fundamentally wrong. And I think fundamentally at odds with the Constitution and the ideas of the founding fathers of America, I think that the ideas there were that democracy should shift, that the constitution is changeable, that the law is changeable. And the issue that we face now is that because the sort of sentiment you mentioned exists um, across American society, there's a real unwillingness to change the law, to change regulation, or to like put any kind of brakes on the technology that is actually being used to manipulate public opinion and manipulate uh, the masses. You write that you try not to use the phrase fake news. Instead, I use the term misinformation, by which I mean the accidental spread of false content or disinformation, by which I mean the purposeful spread of false content. I sometimes refer to fake news or junk news. And when I do, I mean articles constructed to look like news that are not actually true because they lack facts of verifiability. These types of articles, like the infamous pieces that came from the bogus Denver Guardian during the 2016 U.S. election, are created with an intent to mislead lead, confuse, or at times just make money. Is it possible to make bogus news sites like the late Denver Guardian unprofitable business models so nobody will pursue them again? Is it possible to take the market and profit incentives out of fake news? I think that you've you've mentioned something really, really good here, which is this idea or important here, which is that that a lot of the fake news sites that existed during 2016 and, and indeed the ones that exist now during 2020 and around the world during other contests are actually created because they're financially beneficial. So the more people that click on a sensational article and the research shows, by the way, that people love sensational stuff, the more people that click on it, the more advertising that site gets. Um, and so. So 
yes, absolutely, it is possible to to de-incentivize the financial motivations to create these kinds of fake sites. And Google has taken some steps to do this. So is so is Facebook, um, and Google's uh, YouTube. Um, but we're not seeing enough of this. We need to see more. And the other important thing here is that not all disinformation that gets created, so purposefully created fake stories like the Denver Guardian stuff, not all of it gets created with the intention to make money. There's a huge amount of it that gets created with the intention to manipulate on behalf of governments. And so that's something completely different. There's also a lot of it that gets created because by people who believe very much in what they're creating. And so it's, you know, there's been an undue focus in, um, in the United States since 2016 on the problem of advertising uh, on Facebook or on Google or YouTube. Um, and I think that it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think we have to go a lot deeper if we want to truly understand what's going on. You said something in that response that I, I just got stuck in my head. Uh, what happens if everybody is drawn to the sensational, if then social media works in promoting the sensational? What happens when social media makes our politics sensational? What are sensational politics? <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is something that kind of gets glossed over a lot of the time. Um, in a lot of ways, social media, like sites like Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube, they've become ambient. They've become just part of the air that we breathe, uh, especially for young people, but also for a lot of us, um, including people that are over the age of 60. Uh, and so social media are built to maximize engagement, to get people to go online and stay online and, and spend a lot of time there. And people that have created social media are well aware of the psychology behind the demand for things like disinformation. In fact, I just wrote a paper on this with Katie Joseph for the National Endowment for Democracy, a paper called The Demand for Disinformation. And what we kind of look at is the fact that people love to engage with disinformation. They like to engage with bad news a lot more than they like to engage with good news. Um, and so social media sites have been built to maximize that stuff. And so the idea that they would rapidly change their algorithms to make us spend time offline uh, is is kind of a non-starter. And so, yes, social media has changed things uh, to a great degree. We all know the idea of the soundbite, which is uh, you know, a concept from the news in which the news anchors just give you a little tidbit of information and not a lot. Well, social media takes us to the nth degree. We just get a tidbit and not a lot. And oftentimes they're actually calling stuff from news organizations and then not really directing people back to the news organization that spent all the time investigating. You also offer this caveat, and I'm glad that you do. When I talk about democracy, I'm talking about democratic values, liberty, equality, justice, and so, for, so forth. I'm not advocating the U.S.-style democratic governance or for any other hybrid democratic, republican, parliamentary, presidential system. I gl I'm glad you make that caveat because I know that I would be getting emails from people saying that they assumed <laughs> that democracy, the democracy you're talking about, is one that already exists and is here in the United States. And you write that when yeah. I talk about human rights, I have in mind the definition as defined by uh, the United Nations, and you add, we should bake the values of democracy and human rights into our technology. We must prioritize equality and freedom in the, t and in the tools we build so that the next wave of devices will not be used to further damage the truth. Were these damage, were these devices, and you touch on this a little bit already, but were these devices in any way intentionally made to damage the truth? So... I think that social media sites and platforms and, and the newest wave of chat apps, I think that they were built in the gray area. I think they were built with without a lot of thought. 
into how they could be used for the purposes of control, for the purposes of of maximizing, and you know, for the first purposes of maximizing eyeballs, um, you know, I, to some extent, I I I I'm skeptical of the argument that social media organizations didn't actually <laughs> consider the fact that maybe governments might use their tools to manipulate people, um, but. In other cases, you know, I've spent time sitting down with engineers and other people at a variety of different companies, and they've told me that the culture of engineering and the culture of software creation is is very much geared towards Facebook's maxim of move fast and break things, of the hacking culture of just creation without really thinking about the outcomes. And so uh, I think that that neglect and that glossing over of the need to think about outcomes or to think about democracy, equality, uh, human rights... Um, has resulted in what we have today. Uh, and so when I advocate for designing for human rights, what I'm talking about is actually thinking about the consequences of the thing you build. Um, with Jane McGonigal, who's a game designer and support from Omidyar Networks, we created this thing called the Ethical Operating System. You can you can access it for free at ethicalos.org. And it's basically a series of prop provocations around a bunch of different risk zones that help people who design technology to think about the problems that might arise when they're building AI systems, when they're building drones, when they're creating um, systems for police officers to, to use facial recognition. Well, that's ethicalos.org. Why weren't ethics considered? Uh, you know, when I was taking journalism classes, don't worry, I didn't graduate with that degree. When I was taking <laughs> journalism classes, uh, you know, one of the first things you're taught is ethics in journalism. So why isn't ethics in technology part of the curriculum in order for you to even get a degree to even work in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think it defies the prerogative of, of the technology and of the marketplace in Silicon Valley. I think that uh, engineers have been taught that their their jo job is to work on a particular isolated problem. And then once that problem is is fixed, then they never really see it again. They don't get it. There's no sense of start to finish uh, ideology in these places. Like you're not actually like looking at social implications as much as you're looking at fixing a bug and then, you know, moving on to profit. And it's really important to remember that Facebook and Google both make all of their money from things like advertising. And so advertising is the precursor a lot of times to what we see with computational propaganda. In fact, a lot of the tactics that we see with the problems of disinformation that I explain politically in the book actually arose out of advertising. And so the things are intrinsically connected and uh, you can't really uh, you can't really separate the two. So. Tell me if this is unfair. Is it unfair for me to say then that social media is the experience that we have on it might be we might see moments that are not ethical, that are very unethical. So is is social media unethical because Silicon Valley is unethical? Yeah, so part of the problem here is that ethics is in the eye of the beholder, and tech companies are well aware of that, and they've actually begun taking the language of ethics in the same way that politicians have been taking the term fake news and reusing it to spread fake news. Um, so the simple answer is, like, you know, from a moral standpoint, some of what social media has done has been unethical because it's maximized control of people. And so if we take if we take freedom as being one of our core values, freedom freedom of expression, freedom of of thought, 
um, freedom of the press, then yes, social media and technology firms have violated those freedoms because they've they've manipulated us into doing things that we potentially didn't want to do. And now, I, you know, I, I'm sure some people are shaking their heads and thinking, you know, well, you all get to decide. You get to decide whether or not you go online or not. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that maybe that was true in 1999, that you could just turn off social media, turn off the internet. I think now in 2020, no one gets that choice. You have to be connected if you're in the Western world and increasingly in places like India and throughout Africa as well. You, that's very frightening. You opened with the 2017 revelations in an Oxford University paper of malicious digital propaganda and trolling campaigns funded by the campaign of Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines. He denied it, attacked the source, and it was no, shown he continued to fund the campaign. You write, Duterte, like many other world leaders, had turned social media into a tool for public manipulation, and you were the director of research for the Oxford team that drew Duterte's ire. How dependent is the continued success of more authoritarian leaders around the world like Duterte? How much do they need disinformation, purposefully misleading and inaccurate statements to attain and maintain their popularity and power? And is it any different for those who are, who are on the far left? Does the far right need disinformation in order to attain power? I think that people like Duterte or Bolsonaro in Brazil Erdogan and Turkey, um, even to some extent Trump here in the United States, rely upon disinformation and misinformation to a massive degree. I think there's been a huge degradation of the truth. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Our concept of the truth has really been challenged. No longer do we rely upon um, empirical knowledge, so being able to just observe something or being able to think about evidence. Um, I was sitting with a friend yesterday, and what he said was, Ask someone to tell you straight facts about a political issue in the news. So ask them to tell you straight facts about Ukraine, and you'll get about two or three sentence, two or three facts in before they can stop telling you anything. Despite that, there's oftentimes a ton of emotion surrounding these issues, and it doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left. Again, like oftentimes, my, you know, me myself, like I don't have a ton of facts when it comes to things that I feel extremely emotional about, and the internet exacerbates that. The internet makes it so that we can access sort of like you know our trolliest self and sort of react to things rather than to think through them. Um, there's a, a number, it's called Dunbar's number, and it's it's this number that's, you know, that's, that's more of an idea than anything. And it suggests that once things get to a certain size, they get out of control, they lose their luster. And this, this reigns true for online sites as well as it does for offline communities. So when Twitter was really small, people say it was great. And when Twitter got bigger, people say it wasn't so great. And to some extent, it's always like a grass is always greener, or I liked it before it was cool kind of thing. But to another extent, it's like, you know, these things grow to be such a size that they're that they devolve. And to return back to these politicians we're talking about, um, whether on the far right or far left, uh, they know this very, very much. There's a reason that Donald Trump loves Twitter, and that it's because it gives a mouthpiece directly to the citizens. The internet is a many-to-many -many network. And so politicians have figured out that they can normalize control, and that's just fa a fancy way of saying that they can use tools that were created to actually provide people with access to all sorts of information, in fact, to direct them to a bunch of bad information. And, and so these politicians rely on this stuff to a great degree. And so it's a real shame that the social media firms have basically made decisions that say, we're not going to police 
uh, politicians who knowingly spread disinformation, even though that might lead to violence, even though that might lead to death. I mean, think about things like Myanmar, where tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims were murdered um, because of disinformation spread by the government on Facebook. What happens to democracy when it is no longer as dependent on facts, evidence, reason, and instead is driven by affect, by feelings? I think democracy devolves, uh, but this isn't a new issue in a lot of ways. Remember, the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights is all about free speech, freedom of the press, freedom to information. That's what the First Amendment is. And we have to think about this long and hard when we start attacking the press, when we start demonizing them. It's, it's pretty common now on both sides of the aisle for people to say, oh, the mainstream media or traditional media is really unreliable. I think that you have to dig deeper and think about the politicians who are attacking the credibility of the media. I think you have to think about the ways in which the, air quotes, mainstream media has been uh, massively sort of defunded and demobilized by powers that be like Google News and YouTube who just take blurbs but then don't direct people to other places. Research shows that people only read the first few sentences. So if they can get that on Facebook, which you know we know that they do, Pew shows that you know, over 70% of Americans get news via Facebook as one of their primary sources. We know that, that journalism is going to devolve. And when journalism devolves, that's the first sure sign of democracy devolving and being in trouble. Um, but everything's not lost, you know, like, and, and I want to drive that home again and again and again. Democracy evolves to things, uh, you know, to Socrates and the first democracies had the concept of, of representation, you know, in fact, like this idea of the philosopher king, because they knew that regular people could oftentimes be driven by passion. And I know the electoral college is really unpopular and I have a lot of questions about it myself, but the concept of representation in U.S. government, things like, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate is drawn from these same ideas. Like we need people that represent us that are that are more educated about the law and that will do things with our best interest in mind. The problem is right now, those people are not in Congress, a lot of them. Those people are not in the Senate. We're driven by polarization. And, and I like to say oftentimes that, you know, if disinformation is, is the wave that we're currently experiencing, polarization is the tide. Polarization is the deeper problem. Last year, we spoke with, you were talking about free speech, and last year we spoke with P.E. Moskowitz, who argues in the book, The Case Against Free Speech, the First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent, that there cannot be free speech unless we all have the same equal access to all media outlets, that an inequality in, ex in accessibility to have your voice heard based on how much money you have undermines free speech, no longer making it free or fairly attainable across class divides. What happens to political debate? What happens to democracy when the more money, the more time and the more technical know-how you have determines your influence over politics and social life? What happens is that the powerful and the elite gain control of the airwaves. They gain control of the internet. It's funny that you bring this up because I was just teaching a class, a media law class to, you know, over 100 students here at UT Austin. And we were discussing the ways in which the law has rapidly changed in the last 20 or 30 years since the advent of the Internet. And I kind of brought this up earlier, but the Internet was was, you know, originally heralded by a lot of people, despite its origins in the in the armed forces and at a few universities, was heralded as a tool that would create access to information in a way we'd never seen before. So it was really exciting for a lot of people. And there was this concept of digital utopianism, and it still reigns supreme in Silicon Valley in a big way. Um, 
but but what ended up happening is that the internet was quickly co-opted by companies that that used it to control things like intellectual property to control ideas to control access to information now there's some old research out there that shows that when people go online they tend to access the same five websites over and over and over again each of us have our own five websites um part of that is because of the way that the internet's built but also part of the way is the it, Part of this is that the way that the internet's been shepherded, that that companies have created monopolies on ownership of sites and ideas, and it, it all goes kind of back to a two thousand a piece of uh, regulation from the Federal Communications Commission in two thousand three when they basically decided that broadcast uh, TV um, stations could also own newspapers in the same exact town, and then it like blew up and became a thing online as well as offline. So now we just see like a lot of conglomerates owning right to content online. And just to, as a final point on this, access to information is one of the most crucial parts of any democracy. We all need access to information to be decent voters. And in our current environment, we don't really have that. I, I say this to guests every so often, but uh, I think I had like 75 questions written down for you. And instead, what I'm doing <laughs> is I'm just doing follow up questions to things that you say because you're sparking some really <laughs> interesting thoughts. I have. Uh, you were talking about how social media is corporate controlled. Is social media in any way than what we see online? Do you think that's any, in any way indicative of what a corporate controlled government would look like? We've been hearing for years people on the right saying if government was only run like a business, is what we see in social media what government would look like if it was run like a business? More likely than not, yeah. I think that we th we we have this idea that we need smaller government in order for government to a not interfere in our lives as much and to b be more efficient and less bureaucratic. But I think what we're seeing is that the more you corporatize government, the less checks and balances there are on on processes, and the the in fact the more faceless process like people and processes get. So in corporations, you know, there's this kind of phenomenon in Google where no one really knows who's to blame or who should take uh, credit for a particular algorithm or a bad outcome. Say, for instance, disinformation flowing like the Parkland shooting, character actor videos being the number one trending video on YouTube. No one knows quite like who's responsible. Um, the same thing happens a lot of the time in. Corporatized governments, uh, and it's not to say that it doesn't happen in less less sort of corporate governments, less governments of of the old school, but it happens a lot more now. The other thing about this is that the more we build our governments, like we build social media systems, like we build these firms, the more black boxed what happens inside our governments will be, and that's a big problem because access to information on public officials is again another real crucial part of democracy. So is the problem simply anonymity? I have heard people argue that all of the problems would go away of social media if we could just hold the people responsible for what they post online. Yeah, you know, I hear that argument a lot, too. And I, I think it's really it's 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 interesting, but it's also an oversimplification. Anonymity can be a real problem. Anonymity can allow people to access their worst selves and to be extremely uncivil online. Um, there's research that shows it, but I think we all know it anecdotally, <laughs> like on Twitter. Um, but anonymity is also extremely beneficial for people in limited uh, countries with limited media systems, like, say, Saudi Arabia or authoritarian countries, because activists use anonymity in those places to um, to communicate and to organize and to try to fight back and to promote the tenets of democracy. Um, 
so anonymity is a double-edged sword. Uh, it, it can it can cut for democracy and it can cut for control. Um, you know, this is very much along the same lines of people that say we should ban all bots on the internet or something like that without really understanding that bots are really infrastructural to the internet. Like Google wouldn't function without bots that crawl and search for links. Um, and nor would most of the internet function. Over 50% of all traffic online is actually from bots because bot basically just means a piece of automated software that runs on its own to keep things going. Uh, and so, so we can't just do away with anonymity. Privacy has a place online just as much as security and safety have a place online. The thing is, we've been sold this line by social media firms and technology companies that we can either basically have uh, privacy and anonymity, or we can have safety. And I just don't buy that. I think that we can, you know, from all the research that I've done over the course of time, there's people that are thinking about these things in really creative ways and actually being able to build platforms that that provide a mode, you know, provide serious privacy, provide user control, but also provide safety and, uh, you know, a lack of harassment. But the direction the technology is going in, as you point out in your book, is not just bots. We're going to see chatbots, and that's going to be uh, far more influential over the political debate, the online debate and discussion that's happening. Why are chatbots worse than bots? So up until really recently, most of the disinformation and propaganda campaigns we've seen, uh, whether they've been spread by governments or spread by groups of individuals, have used what I call dumb bots. So just bots that get used to massively drive up likes or to boost the image through retweets of a certain politician or uh, you know an idea. And the goal oftentimes of these bots is to get things to trend. There's an assumption that like dumb bots, you know, there's always been this assumption in my work that these dumb bots are out there trying to like talk to people and get them to change their mind. And that's just not right. Like that's not the case most of the time. These are really unsophisticated. They're built to game the algorithm. We're not talking to we're not talking a bot like i.e. a computer to a person and the computer is getting the person to change their mind. We're talking something much more layered. So the computer is talking to another computer to the algorithm on Twitter that creates trends. The algorithm on Twitter that creates trends is driven by quantitative metrics a lot of the time. At least it it used to be to a large degree. There's been a lot of changes made, but um, what ended up happening was that you know when when a bunch of bots came and made something look popular, it would create a trend, uh, and so it was effective because then I, I would see the trend or someone else would see the trend and they'd share it. It would also happen that journalists would see that something was trending and they'd think that it was popular and that they should report upon it. And so you know we were all kind of tricked into believing that these trends were significant. Um, what we're seeing now is this switch to chatbots, the switch to AI. Chatbots have been around on the internet since the internet became public, um, and machine learning capable chatbots have been around. There's something called, uh, you know, Eliza since, you know, f from decades ago. Um, but they've been expensive to make. They've required a lot of resources and know-how, and that's changing. So AI-enabled bots, specifically machine learning-enabled bots that are trained to learn from their surroundings and pivot and and uh, speak differently depending on who they're interacting with or where they're interacting, these are becoming more accessible. And um, I talk about a, a group of hackers uh, at one of the main hacking conventions where we're interviewed or polled during the convention a couple years back, and they all said that AI-driven uh, chatbots used for manipulation were on the rise and that we should expect to see them soon. And we are starting to see them emerge. So 
What happens when human society is more convinced by bots, chatbots programmed to convince than by conversations with other humans? What happens to conversation with other humans when we have been engaging with bots all day, whether we know that we have been talking to bots or not? I think that the that the potential is that you know we could be much more manipulated because with machine learning like if you dig down really deep the idea is that the bot would understand sentiment almost better than a human would if sentiment analysis continues to progress we're not there yet and so i want to demystify this a bit like we're not like the average ai system has the intelligence of a 5 year old and that's according to stanford researchers so most of these systems are pretty still pretty like basic the thing is, a five-year-old is still pretty good at manipulating people. And so there are cases in which, for instance, older people can get tricked by this. There was an NYU study out of the Social Media and Pol Political Participation Lab, the SMAP lab, that showed that the lion's share of disinformation that was shared or, or that was shared as then misinformation accidentally was shared by people over the age of 65 during the 2016 election in the U.S. Um, so... I think you know as, as chatbots get, get chatbots get more sophisticated, we should be concerned about them being able to manipulate public opinion because they you know they can understand nuance, they can be effective at manipulating young people, old people, um, people in countries limited media systems. That being said, there are ways that we can we can identify bots, uh, both hardware and software solutions. Things as simple as tags for saying that this account is highly automated. There's always going to be a problem of false positives, and so there's been a lot of kickback uh, from sort of people that like to cherry pick research that has suggested that uh, that you know even really popular accounts get identified as bots or automated. Well, my response to that is that oftentimes in those cases, those accounts are automated. Yes, there's a person that is at the front of the account, but there's oftentimes, oftentimes a bot behind the account that's helping it to generate content so quickly. You write, even as the political noise on social media becomes unbearable, things are changing. The tactics of computational propaganda are progressing and new tools are emerging. Trolling campaigns and botnets, groups of bots, are becoming more subtle and harder to track. Politicos are now beginning to seize upon advances in artificial intelligence to leverage the already widening rifts in society for political gain. They deploy smart technology to do the dirty work of campaigns. AI doctored videos increasingly individualize online political advertising campaigns campaigns and facial recognition technology are among the tools used for these ends. Is social media about to become a far more propagandistic, manipulative voice of disinformation, lacking little to any credibility because of advances in technology, advances that were the outcomes of decisions by humans to even be better at spreading manipulative lies? Are we just becoming more manipulated as technology progresses? I think that there's there's the potential for this. Um, if my book does its work right, people will prove the subtitle wrong. So the next wave of technology won't break the truth. I'm quick to point out in every single chapter that's about new tech, like the chapter on AI and machine learning, the chapter on deep fakes, that the technology is still in the works and we're not seeing it hit the mainstream just yet, this really sophisticated stuff. You know, we don't see super sophisticated VR manipulation campaigns just yet for the in, for the most part. But we're sort of like <laughs> teetering towards that direction. And so unless social media firms start really taking this stuff seriously, 
unless governments start taking this seriously and working in concert with social media firms to make sure that we don't just basically have a bunch of corporations deciding who gets to say what, because we don't want that either. And also, unless civil society and regular citizens step up, this stuff will get more potent. There's no doubt about it in my mind, because propagandists are pragmatists. They will make use of whatever tools are out there. When I was studying the 2016 U.S. election, most of the people that I was talking to were like people like political consultants, political advertisers, PR folks. And what they told me was that their MO is that they throw anything against the wall and see what sticks. And so they want to use the latest technology. And people on both sides of the aisle are getting less scrupulous about how they use that technology to get their message out. Things like geofencing, which basically takes makes use of your geographic location by way of your third-party application data, which a lot of people don't think about, are getting used by campaigns on the right and left. Beto's campaign used it uh, during the presidential campaign, his presidential run before he dropped out. And right-wing super PACs are using geofencing, basically buying third-party application data to try to isolate individuals and target them with highly manipulative information. And now some people might be saying, oh, well, isn't that what Cambridge Analytica said they could do back in 2016? Yes, to some extent, but now we're actually seeing it be realized. Cambridge Analytica was a big marketing campaign. It's not to say that there wasn't a lot of power behind them, uh, powerful people, a lot of money, but it is to say that they were kind of selling a technology that they didn't have uh, perfected yet. Now we're seeing that stuff get perfected. Now it's actually happening. You write human mimicking bots and the rumors they were used to spread generated confusion in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. They continue to be key tools for stymieing democratic activism in Syria and were integral to the disinformation strategy deployed online against Jamal Khashoggi. The goal of these sorts of campaigns is to change how people think and feel about politics, not just to get them to vote for a certain candidate or take a different perspective about a news story, but to confuse, polarize, and disenchant. Is the goal then to disempower, to spread apathy, a lack of a sense of agency, (laughs) even powerlessness? Is it an attempt to make us give up politically, to depoliticize the public by the global elite? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, When I've talked to the people who make and build computational propaganda systems like the bots, the, the, the manipulative videos, the memes, they oftentimes tell me that it's a misconception that the goal is to get people to change their minds about something. They say the real goal is to generate apathy, to make people not want to engage with the democratic system, to make people really distrust the media, to create confusion, to create, uh, you know, in some ways polarization, which, you know, is, you know, politicizing things, but also is driving things like confusion and apathy and uh, disinterest in democracy because people don't believe it anymore. And it's uh, really important to remember that we've seen this throughout history, um, but the technology that we have today amplifies it and, um, and anonymizes it a lot of the time. The Russians during the Cold War perfected these kinds of techniques uh, for the use of discrediting information or discrediting people. There's concepts like compromat, which is coming up with compromising material on a person to defame them and defame their ideas. And, you know, disinformat, like the, the idea of disinformation, like you would drive disinformation so that people would stop paying attention because they thought that everything was just bogus. So to overwhelm the system. And I think the worst thing that could happen in response to the problem of of digital disinformation and and whatnot is like more noise. Um, so oftentimes people ask me like, should I create an army of bots that fight back that create 
that promote democracy. And we can't fight fire with fire here. We have to make base level technological changes to the systems that we use. We need new types of social media. I'm pretty skeptical that we can fix the systems that we already have, the system that is Facebook or the system that is YouTube. I think they're you know, they're trying to fix the plane while the plane's being flown, to use a tired metaphor um, that I hear a lot actually from people in those companies. And so, yeah, I, you know, we're in this situation where we've got to redesign the technology with human rights in mind. So what about these new alternative social media platforms that people are trying to get me to sign on to now? Are any of those <laughs> any good? Yeah. So there's some that are out there that are interesting. Um uh, TikTok is one that everyone always talks about because it's kind of like Vine and it's this new video sharing platform, but it's also owned by a Chinese company. And to some degree, like any company, and any company that's owned within China uh, is is rife for manipulation. Um, so another example of a, of a interesting uh, app would be something like Signal. Um, it's a closed encrypted messaging app, and it, it is really useful, and it is it does promote privacy and encryption to a great degree. But there's a lot of concerns right now about privacy, um, and uh, while not really considering the fact that on encrypted platforms, disinformation can spread a lot faster and a lot more pervasively without any ability of researchers like me to study it, because it's hidden. And so in India, we're seeing WhatsApp get used, which is another encrypted chat app. Um, to spread massive waves of disinformation, both from organized sources and, you know, disorganized sources. And these are leading to, like, offline murders and things like that. So they all have their own perils. Um, I don't quite think we're to the place yet where we're seeing social media that's truly designed with democracy, the tenets of democracy in mind. Although there are companies that have, like, led the way to more or less extent. Um, Mozilla would be one of them. Um, there's the company that's called, uh, Mastodon, um, there's a number of others that are trying to kind of do this work. Uh, and, and I, I'm hopeful. We have been speaking with writer and researcher specializing in the study of automation, AI, emergent technology, politics, persuasion, and social media, Dr. Samuel Woolley, author of the book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. And we didn't even touch on VR that much, which will be a completely immersive political indoctrination tool that can be used in social media. So you got to check out Sam's book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. We didn't even touch on some of the many topics that he's brought up in his book. Uh, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write soon after Duterte's attack on Oxford, the award-winning Filipino news outlet Rappler, produced a short video that explained how a variety of powerful political groups around the world, like the Duterte regime, use sites like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook to troll their opposition, post deliberately offensive or incendiary online comments, and amplify spin campaigns. I'm not too sure how hellish of a question this is, but... Why does trolling work so well? Why are people so suckered into trolling? I just don't get it. I don't know why it's so effective and why people can't not be provoked in by a troll. Uh, I think that there's been a perception online for a really long time that we shouldn't feed the trolls, that we shouldn't respond. Um, and I think that there's there's 
this conventional wisdom to some extent is problematic. I think that we actually have to do things. We can't just let the trolls uh, reign supreme and do what they want to do. And so to some extent, you know, I'm saying that we have to get rid of the worst types of trolling online, hate speech, anything that attacks protected groups, um, any kind of trolling that leads to electoral interference saying you should vote on a different day and things like that. Um, but I also think that we have to figure out how to fight back. There's actually a fantastic uh, piece by The Verge from a couple of years ago that's called Don't Feed the Trolls and Other Hideous Lies that kind of goes into the ways in which, you know, maybe we need to think about this differently. Um, because if we don't start fighting back and if we don't start responding um, in a coordinated way, then they will take over the Internet. On that happy note, Sam, it's been a lovely conversation <laughs> with you. Uh, it, great to have you on the show. Dr. Samuel Woolley is author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. You can find out more about Sam at his website, samwoolley.org. That's with two L's. And he founded and uh, directed the Digital Intelligence Lab at the Institute for the Future, a 50-year-old think tank based in the heart of Silicon Valley. And you can find out more about the lab at iftf.org, as it is in partnership with the Institute for the Future. And you you can also find his work at the University of Oxford at a very long website that I'm not going to give out right now. We have it linked at our website, so <laughs> go check it out there. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Sam. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been a blast. All right. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This Is Hell in a moment, as well as the moment of truth and what's happening on the show next week. This week's question from hell is, where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? You can leave your answer at to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email myself or Alex Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question gets a this is hell tote bag, which you can see right now at this is hell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah. Thomas H says in the tote bag, don't ask how they got there. Well, 71% anyway. We'll add more later. Don't ask. Eddie C says in the 34th chamber of the Yang Tang clan. And posted a link to uh, Dave Chappelle doing a uh, crowd work for Yang 2020. Can you believe that? What the hell happened to Dave Chappelle? He got all jacked up, and then all of a sudden he starts backing Andrew. Maybe he got rich. So uh, yeah, you think? You think? Uh, Debs B says, on Tom Price's desk for review and light revisions. The second <laughs> draft should be available in time for the convention, hopefully. Where did you leave those damn vote totals? Aaron B says, under six bong hits and a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Gorilla G says, gulp, what vote totals? Our own Jeffy D, who's on hold, by the way, said in the medicine cabinet behind the Maylocks, Chandler H. posted a gif of that old guy from The Simpsons, uh, the old rich guy. Mr. Burns. Watch. Yeah. Throwing, uh, shredding a paper and throwing it out the window. And then finally, via email, this last one, uh, Adam B. said, under my bread pricing worksheet. Under my what? Bread pricing worksheet. Excuse me? I don't get it, but I love it. <laughs> on Patreon tomorrow, we'll finally get you caught up on what's happening at the lake from the small town newspaper I get as a gift of, got as a gift over the holidays. Yeah, I can't let that story go about the guy towing the U Trump Unity Bridge around town. And I still want to share with you the name of that teenage band in town with the best name ever for a teenage band. We'll also have an update on how weed is still very much a crime in Illinois. This is Hell 
is completely listener-supported, so show your support by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which streams live at patreon.com slash thisishelled. Tomorrow, Fridays, also at 10 a.m. Chicago time, our classic interview we are sharing this week is our March 2014 interview with founding member of the U.S. Labor Party, Adolf Reed. Adolf was on at the time to discuss his article, which had just been published at Harper's, Nothing Left, The Long slow surrender of American liberals. That's right. Six years in the Obama presidency. Adolf was telling us about why the left had lost the president, but the president never loses the left. What we should be doing with the energy we put into electing presidents and how he knew Rahm Emanuel was a unpleasant little expletive the first time he met him. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin, vets the savior of the DNC. We'll also have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell, and we will announce the winner. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was high. Okay, let me change that. Keep in mind, all of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. In the fall of 1944, the United Nations began pursuing its often failed mission of preventing armed conflict and aiding economic development in regions impoverished by earlier colonialism. It was a noble effort, and despite its shortcomings, often blamed on the organization itself rather than the intransigence and bad faith of its members, it has in fact contributed to preventing a third world war, or at least to providing during the low rumble of constant global warfare an institution where diplomatic alternatives to violence can at least be entertained. One can only assume it's better than nothing. However, rather than welcome participation in a forum for discussing international affairs among the actual participants, some in the USA have viewed the United Nations as a kind of global government usurping the sovereignty of the world's most active military power. It's similar to the way Brexiteers fetch about the EU over in England. Anything remotely unifying that might challenge the hegemony of the dominant economic interests is in some it's, it's some kind of committee that will, by definition, design a failed animal. Unions, consumer interest groups, boycotts, marches, climate conventions, diplomatic gatherings of all nations, they're all threatening to the iron fist of the world's policeman, arms dealer, and number one destabilizer of regions. Those with power want to remain in power, naturally, and part of power is appeasing the people, which requires concessions. But as the powerful become greedier and more conservative, as the neoliberal consensus is taking greater hold among them, the concessions they're willing to make in order to appear democratic are dwindling. It's part of a trend. Now, the Democratic primary season has just kicked off. The Democrat National Committee are looking for a savior. Who can excite people enough to get them on board against Donald Dump, but not get them so excited that the Democrats end up having to deliver actual change? 
if they go with someone like Biden and he wins and then does the same democratic right of middle of the road betrayal that Bill Clinton pioneered with his triangulation, then won't the I rate put upon classes make the Dems pay four years later, maybe even allowing dump back into power? No, the DNC reasons. We can get the people if we can get the people if we can get the people to choose Biden, it will mean their expectations have been gently gradually deflated so low that they can only be pleasantly surprised by any crumbs that are thrown their way. But if a candidate promising transformation gets in and can't deliver on the transformative promises, the masses will suffer actual grief and deliver the feared backlash. You can feel betrayed by having your dreams dashed, but not by having your low expectations dropped on a dirty floor from a height of only a few inches. The DNC doesn't believe in dreams. Right now, their big fear is a Bernie win. With Biden pooping the sheets in Iowa, all their anxiety will be focused, as so much white anxiety is habitually concentrated, on the socialist Jew. Who can save them if not Sloppy Joe? Sloppy, woman-sniffing, language-tangling, limp-waffle Joe. Well, there is one superhero they've been in touch with lately. Really, a cross between a superhero a cross between a superhero and a supervillain. His name is Bolton. 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 John Bolton. They've been seeking his help to destroy Donald Dump for a while now. But the impeachment process has gone as far as it can go. The primaries, on the other hand, have only just begun. I've been listening to a folklore podcast called Bone and Sickle. Of course, I recommend it. It was there I learned the legend of the cockatrice related to the fabled basilisk. The cockatrice is a two-legged chicken dragon that has an absurd crest on its head. It spits poison. It's fatal to look at, but if you show it its own image in a mirror, it will die. If you hadn't already guessed, Donald Dump is a cockatrice. Dump loves to look in the mirror, but he really doesn't like to see himself. Not for real. Any reflection of his true nature gets turned into projection outwards, you can tell what he hates in himself by the names he calls others. Sleepy, fatty, crazy, farty, ugly, stupid, crooked, stinky. His body is such a chimerical sack of lumpiness because of all that's crammed into it. He's like 330 pounds of seven doors of crap stuffed into a five-pound bag. That wacky crest on top? A coxcomb, like on top of a cock. A cock, I say, a cock. They say the cockatrice's natural enemy is the weasel. If you can't find someone to cover himself with mirrors, sicking a weasel on the cockatrice is really your only option. You need a weasel if you're going to defeat Donald Dump, the cockatrice. Again, we are brought back to the conclusion. Bolton, Bolton. Bolton is a weasel. Bolton will save us. He wrote a book like so many others, telling everyone for the dumpteenth time what a pain in the ass it is to work for Donald Dump. Sure, Bolton is an avowed enemy of the United Nations and of every nation except his own. Sure, he's a rabid jingoist, jingoistic reactionary prepared to plunge any region into war. Yes, he has the mustache of ad spokesman for oatmeal and synthetic lemonade Wilfred Brimley, who was fatally stomped to death by Tom Cruise in the movie The Firm, but he's no grandfatherly figure, not Bolton. He wrote a book. If you think about it, the DNC has a point. 
Half the country thinks the Dems are Republican light anyway. And many Democrats wish they could be as carefree as Republicans. Just let their hair down and say what they're feeling about the low-rent teachers and other working slobs whom they're always trying to cajole to vote for them. Shout out that, yes, black people get harassed by the cops more than they should, but maybe if they didn't always hang around with such a bad crowd, you know, like other black people, they wouldn't find themselves in trouble with the law so often. And just ask Ellen, if non-binary people would just act normal, maybe straight people would let them alone. And sure, everyone wants to end homelessness, but I mean, have you met the homeless? If you have, you can understand why no one wants to give them a job, right? And Medicare for all, well sure, I'm for it, because I have to say I am, because some loudmouth Jew pulled the party to the left. Thanks a lot. But, you know, if you can't afford to get sick, you should at least make an effort to take decent care of yourself. Have you seen the crap poor people eat? So, why not run a reactionary weasel with the facial hair of a trampled sugar water salesman? You were ready to have him testify to the Senate, though Satan only knows what he might have said. I, personally, never trusted the guy as far as a diplomat could throw him. A Vietnam War apologist who blamed defeat on the anti-war movement, of course. His best efforts to avoid fighting in that war paid off with four and a half months training in Louisiana. Yet another chicken hawk hypocrite. His mentor was Senator Jesse Helms, white supremacist and rabid anti-communist. Bolton helped torpedo an international treaty against biological weapons and undermined diplomatic attempts to stop the spread of nuclear material. Yet he loves to sound the false alarm about other countries having weapons they don't have. I guess fighting arms control helps make his lies a little more plausible. He said Cuba had masses had he said Cuba had weapons of mass destruction. He peddled the lie that Iraq had procured yellow cake uranium. Rich Lowry of the National Review, Bolton's personal friend, says that if Bolton has one fault, it's that he's too willing to tell the truth. I guess lying about countries because he wants the U.S. to invade them is just a way to break up the monotony of being super honest. Bolton opposes the International Criminal Court, naturally, the way bad drivers hate traffic court. This is Bolton, 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 just the candidate the DNC's been looking for. It's too late to run him in Iowa, but maybe they can throw some of the money they might otherwise spend on poorly designed caucus apps his way and get him started in New Hampshire. Bolton the weasel. Legend says that when the weasel kills the cockatrice, the weasel himself also dies. Maybe he really is the perfect candidate. Would that other presidential candidates would be so obligingly self-destructive? If only we could pit them all against each other, then we could just sweep the ashes away. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. That was spectacular, my friend. Two weeks in a row. Absolutely spectacular <laughs> moments of truth. Thank cool. you so much. All right. Up against well, the clock. You. I got to get going. Up against the clock, I am still beautiful. You are beautiful. Stay beautiful, my friend. You too. Bye. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, where did you leave those damn vote totals? Where did you leave those damn vote totals? The person who has the best answer will win a This Is Hell tote bag just the right size to tote lost votes. You can see the tote bag right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Hell? Uh, no moss. I ran through them. The last one was the bread worksheet. Okay, so my answer to this week's question 
from hell, where did you leave those damn vote totals is. I left the votes in the same place I stashed my weed. Now all I have to do is remember the last place I stashed my weed because I really, really want to get high. I mean, uh, get an accurate vote count. So I liked Fabio saying that he had left the votes in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, KH got a lot of likes to his, uh, he left the votes in the bag of money like Bloomberg gave the DNC. Benedict said that he left the votes in Schrodinger's box. That makes this week's winner a cat, some poison, a cesium atom. And now the lost votes in Iowa. It's Benedict for saying he left those damn votes in Schrodinger's box. You have won a This Is Hell tote bag. You can find the tote bag and all our stuff. Hats, t-shirts, coffee mugs, flash drives of classic interviews at thisishell.com when you click on support. Benedict, just send us a message via Facebook or email us at chuck at thisishell.com and we will get your gift out to you post Haste, Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Uh, either Brom Bauscher or Robert Fletcher, or both, will be on to talk about their book, The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Savoring Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. How about Tuesday's show, also at 10 a.m. Chicago time? Uh, I got Margaret Kimberly booked from Black Agenda Report. Really excited awesome. about this one to, uh, to talk about her book. and practice saying the title, uh, Prejudential. Black Americans in the White House. And what about Wednesday? Uh, still working on that one. Thursday? Still working on that one. <laughs> But we will have another moment of truth from Jeff. So look for that. Thanks to this week's guest, sociologist Martine Arboleda, author of Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. And did you look at that video of that mining machine that Justin sent us, Alex? Oh, yeah, Nightmare. What the music was weird. <laughs> Everything other, yeah. I, I'm putting that video up on Facebook. You get a ch chance to look at it. Everybody. It's like it there's weird porn music while this thing is moving and in, in the weird time lapse photography and what a bizarre, bizarre industry video right. that was. Cursed image. Thank you, Justin. I cannot thank you enough. Also, thanks to sociologist Josh Syme, author of Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Syme. That's S-E-I-M. Thanks to historian Umberto Beck, co-author of the Descent Magazine article, Year One of AMLO's Mexico. You can follow Umberto on Twitter at Umberto Beck. And thanks to this week's, or today's guest, Dr. Samuel Woolley, author of The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. Find out more about Samuel at samwoolley.org. That's with two L's. This week's hangover cure is the Bangkok favorite, Khao Tam Kui, a Thai cuisine rendition of piping hot starchy rice porridge with sides that range from bra braised meat to spicy salad. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Jonah for producing this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. I hope to see all of you at this is hell office hours tomorrow night, Friday, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. And then back here on Monday at this is hell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time again. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh -huh. And my demon tries to knock me down.
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.